Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. What up, Get Up Nation? My name is Ben Biddick, the host of the Get Up Nation podcast and co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Lurong Living, Adam Greenberg. Welcome to episode 11. This episode features former United States Army Staff Sergeant Kat Kalin, who served as a member of the United States Cultural Support Team attached to the Army Rangers and Delta Force in Afghanistan. This mission was created by the legendary former Navy SEAL and U.S. Special Operations Commander Admiral Eric Olson. He identified the immense importance of special operations ability to successfully and respectfully relate to an Afghan population, adhering to strict cultural norms associated with the treatment of women. Staff Sergeant Kalin's involvement in this mission helped pave the way for women in combat operations while simultaneously creating a safer United States of America. If that alone isn't inspiring enough for you, she is also a survivor of military sexual trauma. Hear her share not only her experience on the battlefield during the global war on terror, but her experience in the battle to overcome post-traumatic stress associated with sexual assault. Today she continues to fight to leave no one behind when it comes to mental health. She is a host of the Mentors for Military podcast and is an all-around 360 amazing human being. Thank you, Staff Sergeant, for joining me on the Get Up Nation podcast. It is an honor and a privilege to have you talk with me today. I am just honored by your willingness to tell your story, to share it with the Get Up Nation audience. I'm sure it's going to speak volumes to people who really need to hear what you have to say. Can we start out by first talking about what led you to join the military? Yeah, sure. Um, Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate just the platform and and, um, just the message that's going to come from this. So I was actually 17 when I joined the Army National Guard in Nevada. At that time, I come from a divorced family, and you think your college tuition is going to be paid for it. It uh, it kind of backfired on me when my, my parents split. So I actually was banking on getting a track scholarship, but at that time I didn't know. I mean, I was a junior so I didn't know if I was going to, if that was going to pan out because normally you don't figure those things out until your senior year. So I was 17 and I just saw a commercial on the TV that said, you can get this big bonus if you join the National Guard and we'll pay for your college. And they say a bunch of lies on the TV. So I'm like, yeah, you know, like this is great. Um, so I went down to my local recruiter and sure enough, he, he straight lied right to my face. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but so I joined the, the transportation unit there, and at that time, I, I was 17, uh, kind of doing my own thing, very defiant, didn't want to listen to anybody, but the kicker for transportation, or what they like to jazz it up, was you get to be this glamorous truck driver um, in the military, and go sit in the trucks outside, and you'll get, you know, you'll feel so great, you know, and when you're 17, you're like, oh yeah, this is so cool, and they're like, we'll give you, on top of that, we'll give you $10,000. And for, for a 17-year-old, you're like, sign me up. Like, this is great. 
So, um, so yeah, so I, I joined mostly for college. I, you know, I wanted to go, I thought that was my plan after I, after I graduated high school and I joined specifically for, for the college benefits. So I went to basic training in between my junior year in high school and my senior year. And then I finished my senior year and, and got a track scholarship on top of that. So I'm like, ah, oh, dang it. But no, um, so that's, that's the main reason why I joined mostly was for the, the glamorous lifestyle that the recruiters like to tell you. What are some of the things that you love about military service? One thing that I miss and I feel like I, I still am drawn to is the camaraderie. And that's, that's like a, a double-edged sword because you do meet some remarkable people in the military, and, and I definitely have. But you can also meet some really terrible people as well, and I and I have. So that's one of the the biggest things is the camaraderie, especially with my last deployment, a family that comes with it that you you have a hard time separating from, especially when you're from all over the country. So I do miss the people mostly with the same mentality. It just kind of it's hard to meet people like that. So you experienced something horrific while deployed to Iraq. Will you share with Get Up Nation what you experienced there? Sure. So I see the news and the media now. There are a ton of people coming forward about sexual assault and harassment. And so I graduated high school, and then I went to my my MOS training, my job training. And then from there, my my National Guard unit was already – they had left three months prior to me getting out of, the, out of my training. And when I got back to Nevada, I had a commander ask um, for volunteers. So – Originally, my plan was to go to college and, and run track and, you know, get get it all paid for by the National Guard. But I felt my plans had changed, especially after being in, just for even that short time that, you know, I have a, a unit that is overseas and they need help. I didn't join to dodge my responsibilities because they definitely made that clear. You know, I, I joined in 2005 and that the war was definitely going at that time and, and still is. So I jumped on the chance to catch up with my unit and I deployed to Iraq uh, a week after I turned 19. So right after I turned 19, I'm, I'm sitting in Iraq with my with my company. The unit that I was made of, we're spread across the state of Nevada and it's crazy to say that there's different cultures in just one state, but there definitely were. And you had a Vegas personality, a Reno, um, smaller Vegas personality, and then smaller towns in northeastern Nevada. We all were part of different platoons, and we all had different takes on service and just personality and culture, um, big city life compared to the very rural areas like where I grew up. So most of the people that I that were in my unit, I didn't even know. A lot of the people that made up the company were from Las Vegas and very, I guess you could say, fast, big personality individuals. And for me, that was that itself was a culture shock already being, instead of being just in, in Iraq. When I got over there, I was immediately thrown into this sort of divide and going into subcultures you not only have the difference between male and females over there unfortunately right when I arrived I was placed in this strip in the middle of they call it the living area that I roughly have between I would say uh, close to 200 shoes which are combat housing units and they hold two personnel so right in the middle of this living area was the strip of all the females that were in my uh, company 
and it was known as the <clears throat> excuse me as the the red light district. So for me, that already put me on a little leery. I mean, I was already anxious about being over there. It's just like high school. You want to fit in. You want to surround yourself with good people that have your back. You know, you just want to find your clique. And fortunately, I was thrown into the red light district, and it was humiliating to start. And then with all the rumors and everything that go around with, oh, hey, we're getting this new 19-year-old girl that's part of this company, I remember just wanting never to be around my platoon or where I live. So I wandered off by myself a lot and I kind of isolated myself and was as known as a black sheep. It gets you at from time to time, especially when you're by yourself. But so fast forward six months into the deployment and one of the the intelligence personnel that used to, he pretty much knew everybody that lived or worked on the base in Iraq and he had access to all of our records, and it was weird because I had never seen him prior the six months prior. I mean, probably because I was out on convoy so much, and it was just about like the day before I left for leave to come back to the states. I met, I met this individual, and we had met through him coming to our living area, the, the red light district, and and it was just that one day off before I was getting ready to fly out. I meet him briefly, and then I end up flying out to go home on leave. Well. When I return, I have letters sent to me from this individual, which kind of raised a red flag in my head thinking, I don't I don't know this person, but he had written me and sent letters to the base, from the base, which was just, it was weird to me. And I kept getting these letters and uh, we kept crossing paths and everybody was really friendly with him. Um, they all thought of him as like, oh, he's the cool intel guy that knows all about us. And I, and I was like, okay, we thanks for the letters. It was nice meeting you, you know, that's a nice gesture, but he kept coming around, and I mean, I would get out of my, my chew to go to do my laundry, and he would just pop out of nowhere and, and like, try to do, like, a friendly scare, but it was, it was starting to get to the point where it made me uncomfortable. Definitely felt a little threatened since he was coming around so often. I had a squad leader that had came up to me and said, PSC, you know, at the time, hey, you know, people are starting to talk, and what's going on with this guy? And that, that like, made me absolutely just, like, you know, I had kept clear head, and, you know, I wanted, I didn't want to be known for, to be like the rest of the company of being a part of this red light district and people were starting to talk and, and rumors were starting to go around and it was and it was now definitely grown from that but at, at 19 you you, you kind of could just get this like to crush it right there so um like i said before like i was i was known for wandering around by myself and and one night when i was coming home from the gym i was walking back it was dark we worked at night and he came out of nowhere and he's like hey you know like let me walk you back, back to your two I'm like, no, I, I don't, I don't really think that's like a good idea. He's like, oh come on, like you never, you never want to hang out, you never want to like just, I don't know, hang out as a group or anything like that. And I'm like, listen, like I'll, I'll walk you back to yours because I, I, in my, the back of my mind, I'm like, look, I don't want anyone to see me with him because I don't want rumors to go around. So, we walked back to his chew. We were standing on his steps, and he's like, oh, just come in for a second, and the door is open, and I want to show you this thing. And so I walked into the door, and he shut it and um, blocked it from the inside so nobody could get in. He kept his key in the door. And uh, from there, I, he's like, you know, like everybody's doing it. We both deserve this. And, and essentially what happened was I was raped um, that night. So for me, I think just like I'm, I'm assuming I'm going to jump ahead right now. But for me, um, at that moment, and I consider myself a very strong person, like not just 
physically, but then mentally. And it was what was weird, and I had come to learn about it later on um, through therapy, was that at that time, I completely, I like to say, uh, got absorbed within myself. And um, later, like I said, later on through therapy, I had a therapist say, like, and I, I felt so ashamed of it because I had no recollection. I just remember getting up and putting my pants back on and, and trying to slip out unnoticed. And uh, and from there, I, I have therapists tell me, like, well, like, well, we're going to go through this exposure therapy, essentially, is what it is. And I, I tell them, like, I can't, I can't remember. I just, I folded. Like, I c- completely crippled myself, and I, I blacked out. And, um, like, there were parts among the act that I remember um, very vaguely, but I kept slipping inside of myself as a safety guard. And I, until this day, I can even say that I, I still wish I would have fought, but I, pretty much what took over me was fear. And it's, I definitely believe wholeheartedly is that you don't know what how you react until you experience it and um so I went through a lot of times like blaming myself for not knowing what had happened and and coming to realize that later that I was completely taken advantage of and um and and raped that evening it's a weird it's a weird scenario to me because of how my internal psyche reacted you know a lot of people you know they fight they scream they do all these things and I just completely went blank blacked out I guess you could say so so that was the um the introduction to my military life so initially your psyche used disassociation to help protect you during the trauma what feelings and emotions followed as a result of the trauma you experienced when I left and this is still when I'm in Iraq. When I when I left that moment, definitely did not tell anybody about it. I it was I me thinking to myself. Then I remember thinking like how how does this happen? Like I have I am surrounded by people committing adulterous acts. They're not. I, and I had just come out of uh, basic training. You know, was, like I said, I was 19, very naive, very ignorant. I'm like why? Like this isn't life. This isn't what a soldier is supposed to do. This isn't what. I signed up to do, and I'm surrounded by people that don't give a shit about the mission. They don't care why they're there or the job that they're holding. We're over here for a reason. You know, we're serving our country, and it, and these people are acting like just juveniles. And, and it was – I always had a very disgusting feeling when I was – I was just around – some of the people that I worked with and when that happened it it just made me extremely angry because I was like I was doing everything right like I told myself that I'm like I I wasn't I wasn't around these people I wasn't engaging in these stupid behavior you know I always told myself like I'm not allowed to call the house until I work out so I was trying to maintain my physical fitness and and that was something that I prided myself into but after that happened it actually happened a second time in a very a very similar situation where he found me and said you're going to come back here with me kind of the the very threatening just he he knew he manipulated me to the point where it was one of those situations where you felt like something worse was going to happen worse than getting raped so for me after that uh we were we were there for about a month and a half left in and we were getting ready to leave the LA and move to a different area of the camp and I noticed that I started not taking care of myself. I was sleeping a lot, eating more than I should have, just out of mood swings. The thing that, that I think about to this day that 
reminds me of my of how I was acting was when we were turning in our gear and I had a another female that I worked with who was like Kat you need to get your together like I don't know what's going on with you but I don't understand what's going on here like looking at me as just like a whole on a physical and emotional level and and I remember going to the psychiatrist on the base and I didn't tell him about what happened I just was like hey you know like I'm this is how I'm feeling. And they prescribed me Prozac and Ambien, and this is a month prior to, to leaving theater. And he's like, you're going to have to follow up with a new doctor when you get home. And I'm like, okay. So I was fortunate for the Ambien because then I just slept constantly. It was extremely aggressive um, towards other people that I just did not like throughout the, the deployment. That's where I started noticing changes. And then fast forward 10 years, I actually had a breakdown at my parents' house. My, I mean, you could ask my mother that I was one of those people that just nobody wanted to be around anymore, that I was either sleeping all the time, uh, really depressed, or just really aggressive. And I finally went to the emergency room at the VA in Salt Lake City and got a, a psyche eval done and I went and actually got a PTSD evaluation done as well and uh, like we had spoke before I explained just the same very similar scenario like I explained like on here and my psychiatrist uh, this is back in 2007 and, and at that time I saw a um, psychiatrist that specialized in PTSD who said that what I had experienced was not PTSD because I wasn't in combat per se. I wasn't getting shot at or blown up or so they didn't consider rape at that time PTSD. They so they sent me to another psychiatrist. They explained it to me that I felt that I needed to belong to the company, so I engaged in these activities willingly. I'm just having issue, adjustment issues now that I'm coming home. So for a long time, I was told that I, I and that and that messed with my head completely because then I started blaming myself for for what had happened and the part about when I had blacked out or you know went inside myself as I like to put it it messes my mind like how I started thinking about it as a whole like maybe I did do this like willingly or maybe but I'm I'm like I remember like you don't you don't cry and you don't like um and not to be too graphic but you don't when you when you are engaging in sexual activity with somebody, it isn't you're not like a corpse. And I remember him clearly saying the second time he's like, "You're gonna have to do something this time." And I just tears just rolling down my face. So it's you know I I had played games with myself constantly. I'm like, I I mean I didn't do anything, you know. Like so how is it? I, I just laid there and I just cried the entire time and and um you know so. Fast forward into my 20s, you know, and I um, I finally got out of that unit because I was I had severe anxiety and depression, and I didn't every time I put on the uniform I would have a uh, have an anxiety attack. So I finally got transferred out of that unit into a recruiting command, where that helped a lot as well to get away from the unit. But the the ultimate saving grace for me at that time was that I was married at that time, and I got pregnant with my daughter, and and. From the moment I got pregnant with her, it was like, I'm not living for myself anymore, so I, I have to live for this child. I tell, like, anybody who says, like, how do you get, how do you, like, mentally, you know, get through things like that? And I'm like, I didn't. Like, I I did it as a mom, not as a cat, just her individual self, mm. because I, I definitely know if I, if I didn't get pregnant with her, then I probably would have killed myself. Mm. So, so anyway, I transferred to that, that recruiting command, and... um and that's where I started kind of seeing the light again. <laughs> I see. And you mentioned 
in our talks earlier that you had a moment of significance that happened. I was very vivid, which was a breakthrough into understanding what had happened to you. I believe you said it happened at BNOC. Oh, Is that that's right? right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I can't count. I know it's over um, at least 20 different shrinks that I've seen wanting to give me some crazy diagnosis. And then, you know, the PTSD diagnosis came out and they're like, they accompany that to um, all types of trauma. So I was starting to understand a little bit. I was at that time, I believe I was 24. As far as having these evaluations done, I didn't want to seek treatment or help because with the military, if anybody finds out you're crazy, they're going to kick you out. And I just I couldn't fathom the, the failure that would accompany that, the feeling of failure. So anyway, I pursued on with my career. I got my staff sergeant very early. Yeah, I was 23 at the time, so I'd only been in for six years. And when I went to BNOC, this is when they give you those, those classes that everybody hates to go through, PowerPoint classes, and they showed a video about rape and sexual assault. And they go through all these different scenarios of this is what domestic domestic abuse turned to rape where a husband rapes his wife or a wife rapes her husband, I guess, um, not to go political, but to go both ways. Um, but then they went into, like, different different scenarios of rape or dating rape, and then they, they showed this video of this girl, very similar to me, somebody she whom she had known that she walked off with and he ended up raping her and they labeled it acquaintance rape. And that was another um, argument that I have with myself. It's like, this is somebody that I knew that everybody liked, like how could an individual like that do that to somebody? But even fast forward to when I was at BNOC watching it, it, it completely labeled it. It perfectly labeled it for me. It gave me a definition, like a tangible evidence that I could hold on to. It, it gave me clarity and, and, it's funny because you don't know how you'll react in situations. And for me, that was a really pivotal moment in my life because I had a, a, an instant meltdown. Like, I don't know what happened, but every single emotion had come out. Kind of um, kind of a, a release, I guess you could say, with this constant internal conflict that I had, this conversation I had amongst myself. And I remember going back, like, after getting composure, you know, because I was in a class, there was probably about 20 or, or 30 of us in there, and I come back in, and everyone is like, what the hell just happened? You know what I mean? Like, she just <laughs> left an emotional, like, roller coaster. And, and for me, like, I I felt that this is this opportunity. Like, I'm making this into an opportunity, and, and I told, like, I'm like, you know, we were pretty close. This BNOC was about three weeks long, and we had, and we had gotten pretty close as a class, and I'm like, listen, guys, like, I, I bet you're all wondering why I just left, like, a mess. And I, I definitely find healing through sarcasm. So if, if I make sarcastic jokes or it's not out of um, to be mean or anything, it's just it's, a, it's just how I take things. But, um, you know, at that time I was like, you probably think, like, what the hell is she doing? Like, you know, she just ran out of the class, like, you know, crazy. And I'm like, listen, I know that you know that I, I'm very lighthearted and laid back as a person, but I, I want you – and I feel probably the same way as you do about these videos, that they're silly and they're a waste of time. But for me just now, you know, I had this, like, this moment of clarity. And the, these scenarios are real. And I can tell you they're real because this exact same one happened to me five years ago. And I'm barely figuring out, putting a definition to what it is. And, you know, after that, I had a bunch of, bunch of other staff sergeants come up to me and, 
we're like, you know, you, it doesn't impact you as much unless it, it's somebody that you know and you care about. They were very thankful that, you know, I, I put a face to it because they're like, oh, you seem like a normal person. Like, like you're 20, 23, 24, you're already a staff sergeant, like you're making your way through through um, your career and you're going to grow up and do great things, you know, and it's like I, I struggle every day with, for, with who I am now compared to who I was when I joined and like this is a reality of what this does to people, especially that you care about and that you think that can do great things but are, are dying slowly on the inside. So when I went to BNOC, that was a really, and I still have people from there, from then call me and contact me and are, you know, are, they're like, I tell my soldiers your story when it comes to that and it's it makes it real for them. So, I mean, it was hard. It was, I mean, it was like I said, it was an eye-opening experience. But it was, um, I think I felt at that time too. I mean, these are brand new NCOs that are the face of the military for incoming soldiers and and a representation of what the military is. So they needed to to act appropriately when it came down to this stuff. And as you continue to heal over time, can you describe the process you went through when you were assigned to a new unit? I believe. It was a special operations unit. Right. So, so fast forward again. Um, you know, I had my daughter, and I actually I just had gotten divorced. So I was raising my daughter by myself, and and I started working full time for the Nevada Guard um, in recruiting and retention. And I had a friend from recruiter school. She's a recruiter in Wisconsin. She sent me this email that had come down from. Uh, an army-wide search for or they needed volunteers for this new program and it was um, she emailed me she's like Kat you gotta check this out like I think I'm thinking about doing it it's uh they need females to go out with special operations uh, unit so special forces and 75th ranger regiment as well as we um uh supported um some Delta Force troops and SEAL troops or I don't really know what the SEALs I think platoons I guess um Anyway, so this, this email went out, and I had to go through a selection process through my state and then the actual selection process through JSOC, um, the Joint Special Special Operations Command. So at the end of that, um, there and this whole program was called the Cultural Support Team. So at the end of that, I was selected. There were 60 of us in the course, and 40 went to support special forces. And 20 of us went to support to support regiment, and I was selected among uh, the 20 to go support the the 75th mission. And when I was going through this, I mean, it's it's definitely um, the cool guy stuff. It's the stuff that women at the time were not allowed to even touch. You know, we you have a lot of the closest that you can get is on the interrogation or the intel side. And for us, it was like you would actually be going out and supporting the platoons on the ground doing direct action missions. So, But the, the caveat was that for political reasons, they just say support. They actually don't tell you that you're going to be – they don't tell um, Big Army or, you know, there's a way they around it that they're that women aren't in com- combat arms. So, but for me, a lot of the women that I talked to are like, this is so cool. This looks so cool on my ERB or my um, – ORB, or I think that's what it is for the officers, but, you know, we were, like, paving the way for women to, to for equality for women in the services, and, and for me, it was, like, oh, that's cool, I guess, but um, I I had a, a deeper purpose. I felt that this is the perfect position to um, force myself into a situation that I may possibly fall, and this is completely... Um, ignorant statement so I'm just saying this 
um, to put that uh, disclaimer now because this is prior to me actually deploying, but I'm like, this is a perfect opportunity for me to be thrown into an all-male unit where, you know, being harassed or taken advantage of, there's a higher probability, especially with how people talk about special operations. So like, oh, there are all these alpha males. Um, this is an ex-boyfriend that had told me this. He's like, they're all alpha males that just think that they're they you owe them everything and you know that they're just a terrible environment to be in and da da da. So in my brain, I was thinking like, cat, this is the perfect opportunity because it will give me a chance to never be taken advantage of again. And if the situation arises, um, I'm going to be able to to not fold and and die inside myself. I'll actually fight like I was supposed to the original the first time. So. For me, I was just like, yeah, I'm I'm doing this because I, I have to – this is going to give me closure from um, from what had happened. And I, I had a very rude awakening because, you know, landing into Afghanistan and even the, the training prior to actually going, the, the men among the special operations – and I, I can't speak for any – the men that I've met afterwards through special forces are great as well, but I, I'm definitely biased towards the 75th Rangers um, – they are the most humble, responsible, down-to-earth individuals I've ever met in my life. I would die for any one of them, knowing or not knowing, just because of the quality um, of people that I worked with. And I, I can say that I did get closure because I, I realized that, you know, it's one person. That was one individual. That, that doesn't wrap up the in society as a whole, you know, that was, there are good men out there that are losing their lives every day. And, you know, with, with the Ranger uh, direct action mission, their casualty rate is so high. I mean, uh, on that deployment as well, and I'm sure people have heard of Ashley um, as being one of the first women to be killed among combat, on a combat mission with special operations. So um, she was my partner, Ashley White, was actually killed on October 22nd of that deployment. Um which was set in a whole new set of issues that um, accompanies with um, PTSD and mental health. But that mission definitely changed my life and was one of the the biggest, probably one of the main reasons that I did get out because at the end of that deployment, I remember us all there, only 13 of us had actually gone home together. Um, Ashley was killed and then others were sent home for injuries, but I was sitting with my group in a chapel, a bath, and General Votel was in there uh, briefing us, and we were asking him, you know, like, what's going to happen with the program? What What's going to happen with us? You know, we're really hyped up. We love who we work with. We get along with them. And he just, just like, well, this is it, girls. Like, thank you for your service, and gave us a high five. You know, <laughs> like, it was just very, it, it was like one of those things where it's like, he just gave up so much. You know, Ashley gave up her life for this, and, and for for what, you know? So so I came home and I actually moved to the East Coast and I'm married to a ranger now. And I was like, you know what, that's, that's it. Like, I don't think I, I need to keep experimenting with my life um, in, in different scenarios. At that time, you know, I had my daughter and I was away from her for about a year and a half. So I put my packet in for the IRR and I spent that for the remainder of my um, enlistment and then I got out. So not only did you serve in the United States Armed Forces in combat, but after enduring military sexual trauma, you continued to serve those within your own ranks by raising awareness about military sexual trauma as an NCO. I know we talked about this offline earlier, but can you share with our audience the sense of responsibility you feel as a survivor to protect others that are serving? Right. So 
and thank you for reminding me because I think it's, you know, even after the service, I think anybody, if there are people out there that don't believe this, then absolutely get in touch with me and correct me. But I think anybody who survives the trauma and continues to live their life kind of holds this responsibility of advocating for their community. So for me, I just, this conversation having with you, Ben, is like one of the most in-depth conversations I've had about it, which goes to show how, no, I, and I really appreciate this this because it is such a, a it's a horrific thing that is happening seeing it in Hollywood is definitely coming out about it but like in the military as well and it's it's not so much you know you have the stereotype of men committing or sexually harassing and assaulting women but it's men are and I don't know the numbers on it but are, are at a higher rate of being sexually harassed or assaulted in the military so it goes both on both sides of the gender platform, but I think as somebody who is a survivor who continues to live their life, I don't think anybody who goes through trauma can ever say they will be 100% healed because I am, will never go back to being the person that I was prior to joining the service. But I, I do feel that I have this platform, I guess you could say, not only with the whole special operations mission set and what we had done there for the group of women that I worked with, kind of being a gateway for opening up combat arms, but with being sexually assaulted and raped and, and, and surviving it and, you know, not letting it get the best of me because I definitely did during that incident. I do, I do feel that I owe survivors as well as just society real life evidence. You know, I, I, I owe them, it's a, I have a responsibility now to, to tell my story and to say this is what's happening. Like I completely folded inside myself, completely ashamed of it. And I had a psychiatrist who told me, like, Kat, you know what that is, right? And I had never thought about it, you know. And he's like, that was, you felt fear to the highest level. When I went through my special operations training, we went through this, they call it, like, going going center and getting getting in your zone. And they, they use the code word, green, go green. So they were trying to train us because we were going to be going out on these extremely dangerous missions that the the likelihood of if you're not prepared for what's to come like getting shot at or blown up or um reacting accordingly you're going to fold and i remember we went through this training and it was one of the most beneficial things that i had gone through because i had we had gone through all of these physical exercises and then we are we were teaching ourselves to go back to center to regroup um you know all senses and and get your heart rate down. So you do all these physical activities, and then you come back, and they put a heart rate monitor on you, and you have to get your heart rate in the green zone, so go green. So anyway, I say this because I remember my my very first firefight with going out on a, on a DA mission or direct action mission, coming off the helicopter, and just hit the fan. Like, everyone was running in all directions, and there were RPGs going over our head, and shots were getting fired everywhere. And I just remember coming out, and he, and actually, like, once I realized I was what was happening, my legs went kind of jello. And I'm like, oh, and mentally, I'm thinking, like, oh, you know, like, I, this is not the time right now, body. Like, you need to get in gear so we can go. <laughs> and I remember, I remember telling myself, okay, go green cat, which is super cliche, and it sounds really – really silly but I it's like I felt like Mario had just got his mushroom you know like I was like do 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 and I was fine you know and I just remember yeah it was it was it was the coolest experience and it's super silly because you think like oh this doesn't work like it works but we we as individuals especially in those type of mission sets were trained 
to act, you know, you're trained constantly to react accordingly. And, and I was trained for that, you know what I mean? And it's like, but how can you train individuals to react accordingly when it comes to sexual assault or sexual violence hmm. or rape? I mean, you can't. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to run soldiers through, like, this is what you do, just because it's not it's not supposed to happen. Like, people are not supposed to do that to people. But for me, mm. if I can do anything is help bring awareness to it, teach people to protect themselves. Like, I made the, all the wrong decisions, and I fully admit that. And, and I was in a situation that a bad situation, a bad thing had happened to me because of that situation. Right when I got to Iraq, when I was, uh, that first deployment, I had my commander come up. He's like, okay, here's your essentials. Like, here's your rape whistle. Because I'm like, oh, so at the beginning, I'm like, you you think that a rape whistle is going to save somebody, you know, which was just laughable to me. So as a as someone who lives with the aftermath of that, I do feel a responsibility. And, and I'll tell you straight up, like, coming into this, like, I w- was very anxious. And stressed out about it not not bad stress it's just something that like when it I think it's one of those things where you're like preparing yourself for anything you um you you get anxious so you know I, I told myself since the last time we talked I'm like this is like you can't like be comfortable mm. if you're gonna help anybody you have to be uncomfortable so that's why I say like this has been one of the most open interviews that I've done regarding the incident but um no, I definitely have a responsibility to just people in general. In your opinion, for any male or female who's been sexually assaulted during their service or, or even anyone who has not, even if they have nothing to do with the military and they've endured sexual trauma and they're hearing this, what would be something you would offer to them as they may be grappling with, the, with everything that's happened? They're dealing with thoughts of suicide. They're spiraling into self-hatred and shame and self-destruction and anger. Do you have a um, something you'd like to say to them? Sure. A big reason, I mean, I wasted, I don't want to say I wasted, but I spent over eight years fighting myself because I, I didn't want to admit that I had, I definitely am, <laughs> I'm very alpha female, kind of a, a hothead, but I, you know, I always, um, and I always had leadership qualities, especially as a young child, but for that to happen and for me to be in a in a position where I was ashamed of how I reacted to such to something that I said, you know, I could have said to myself, I would never be taken advantage of, but it, ultimately it happens. And I think, especially when it comes to being taken advantage in that situation, not only by another service member, but somebody, you know, that you may know or be a f- actual a family member or a friend, I think you don't ever have to fight with yourself. And I think that there's so many people do, and that's why they end, like, suicide is so high among community because they just feel like they, you know, you can't go back in time and fix it. And I think just owning up, and this is this is, may sound very harsh, but owning up to what happened and accepting it, it will definitely help towards healing because a lot of times, like, I couldn't, I did not want to accept it, and I wanted to be talked out of it. So... For me, it was definitely accepting what had happened. You know, I didn't want to talk to anybody about this, so I went to, like, different outlets. There's tons of people out there that share their stories just to be to be in the community of service to others who, who may be going through something but are having a hard time talking about it or not being able to find somebody that understands, finding something that is similar to their situation. Because I guarantee that there's other women and men out there that have gone through a very similar situation to mine and are trying to put words to what had happened to them. So 
I think that just owning up to the event, owning up to your feelings as well, and allowing you to express yourself, but opening up, coming on here. I mean, I leading up, and I, I do suffer from depression still, and I'm, but I am aware that I do, and I, I manage it. Sometimes half-assed, but I do manage it. Um, <laughs> but I think just understanding that you're not who you were, and that's okay, and that you can continue to live your life, and you have all the options in the world. Because uh, as an American, I can't say that about everybody in the world, because there's definitely more horrific situations, especially in the Middle East. But I think just looking for the community and and knowing that there's somebody there that won't judge you but will be there to listen is, is huge. And talking about it, if you can get to the point where you can talk about it, it's very healing. You said another thing recently when we talked about how you felt that it's important for people to understand that even if they have a diagnosis, that they are not their diagnosis, that they're a person. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Would, would you care to comment on that? I think with combat, there's such a more uh, defined answer to like, oh, you're not sleeping. Okay. Oh, you saw dead bodies. Okay. Oh, you um, have anger issues. Okay. You, you have PTSD, anxiety, depression. Oh, it's all wrapped into one. It's PTSD. It's like, no, that's not, that's not, I mean, diving deeper into the issue and actually realizing that you're not a label that you're just because you have these symptoms that they are manageable and there, there are ways to work through them. But I, I do think that, it's easy to go into a doctor's office and let them label you, and then you start believing that that's who you are. I think that if you take in what they're considering and what they what they they think that they know about you as far as diagnosis and kind of doing, especially when it comes to PTSD, I mean, there are definitely tangible symptoms such as, you know, like sleepwalking and, and anger and stuff like that. But I think really, like, being able to mitigate that yourself and not become part of the statistic is is a huge a huge thing you experienced one of the worst things a person can experience not from the enemy but from one of our own and you also experienced some of the finest qualities human beings can possess while in a combat zone as a member of the same organization for the person listening to this who's driving by that recruiting office wondering for the people who want to earn the right to wear that uniform and to serve with honor what do you say to them after all you've been through yeah Absolutely. I, you know, um, so it's funny because for me, it was the flashy money, which was, I mean, $10,000, especially to someone with three kids is like, that's nothing. <laughs> but I think, you know, the military is a great place. And I, like, I learned a lot from it. I, I miss it a lot. Um, it's, it's definitely an environment of our own, extremely different culture especially with the different generations of war. But who am I to to tell somebody not to live? You know what I mean? Like, it's life. We have so many different options, especially, like, I have three daughters. And if I had one of my daughters come to me and say, Mom, you know, I'm thinking about joining the Army. I'm like, okay. Here's And I, I'm teaching them about, like, part of my philosophy of teaching is being extremely honest and not sugarcoating the world, but preparing them yeah. for um, not not coming at my 8-year-old and being like, there's rapists out there. Like, no, I'm not <laughs> I'm not doing that. But, you know, it's, 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 um, it's one of those things where it's like if somebody were to uh, want to join, I think that the, the most common sense thing I could, could tell them is don't go for the immediate um, immediate satisfaction, the immediate uh, gratification of joining what they think is the best thing for you because there are so many 
And I learned about all the different opportunities throughout my career, which is why I have a, a plethora of hats that I wear um, from my military experience. But we come from a generation, and I don't think when we when I joined 10 years ago that I, I definitely wish I would have used this outlet. But, you know, social media offers a gateway into people's lives and, like, uh, podcasts, for example, this is the audience that you have with all the different people that you interview who come from all these different dynamic backgrounds, you're opening up doors for other individuals to come and, and ask them questions. So look to a mentor. I mean, find somebody. I, any, as far as like my daughter, somebody or anybody that's deciding to join the service and wanting to work within the capacity that I did look for a mentor, contact me, you know, don't be afraid to message the GWAT era guys, you know, the, the guys that are all over the coffee and, and the, um, the cool monthly subscription boxes, you know, with all the tactical gear, like internet gives you unlo- unlimited levels of knowledge and connection. And I think that, like I said before, with uh, survivors that you don't need to go through this alone. And I, I fully believe that people who are, wanting to make big decisions about their lives can can collaborate with people that have already done that. And if they're willing to talk to you, I mean, why not find out, you know, why not get the information from them? So, I mean, it's easy to sign the dotted line to go drive cool trucks and get, you know, a scholarship or whatever, $10,000. But I, I feel now that I'm, my kids would be more prepared. I mean, yes, both my husband and I are both uh, service. I mean, my husband's still in the service, but um, veterans. Like, yes, you have you have a full you know scale of knowledge here with just your immediate family. But if you're wanting to join a certain you know position or job, or if you want to be a woman that's an, an infantryman or going into regiment, like there are people out there that are um, have gone through it or, or are paving the way currently. So you, use the use your human network. <laughs> Excellent advice. Can I end the show with six quick-fire questions? Willing to run through those with me? Yeah, sure. Who are you thankful for today? Uh, my daughters and my husband. And what are you thankful for today? I am thankful for our service members, and I'm I'm thankful for just being an American, a woman in America. <laughs> and how do you personally fuel the fire within you? Uh, I'm definitely a, uh, I think a lot of people that are in the service, especially transitioning veterans, we are jumping across all over the board because we think we're capable of doing anything. So um, (laughs) if there's something that strikes my fancy, then I definitely go after it full-heartedly and because I have the ability and the drive to. So it just, if it's like the CSC program, like I never for, for a second doubted that, like I just told myself, like I'm doing this. You know, so, and I did, and, and, and definitely have um, paved the way for women in combat. So if you want to do it, just go and do it. You know, that's how I'd like to prepare, of course, but definitely go out and do it. What was one thing that adversity has taught you to value? My sense of self does not have to be defined by one event. I feel like people who have been through trauma to continue to heal, regardless of what the trauma is. And I am at one or at peace with what had happened to me. Now it's just about maintaining who I am as a person and not letting those symptoms or incidents, memories, thoughts take a hold of me and, and become a barrier for what I want to do in life. What are you doing today you never thought you could? You know, I, after that incident, I honestly felt like I was just 
a failure and anything that I did wasn't ever going to be good enough. But I've noticed that just with having children, and I think a lot of parents um, can attest to this, is that you are doing good enough if you have, like, happy, healthy children. And I think that no matter if it's just me doing the laundry and folding it and putting away, then I've I've done what I needed to do. And I, I should be thankful for that because a lot of people aren't in a position to do just basic things. So I, I think just living is, is a great thing. Mm-hmm. What am I doing today that I, I wish, or what was the question? What am I doing today that I never thought I would be doing? Yeah, living. And then what will you do tomorrow you never thought you could? Not to be like one of those mushy, motivational, just continue doing and like moving forward. But I there I have a definite um, fear of heights. <laughs> So I'm still bringing myself up to uh, maybe jump out of a plane one of these days. But as far as that's on my bucket list, I think just continuing to maintain who I am and not fall back to who I was is, is, is good enough for me. Kat, thank you for your willingness to be vulnerable and share what you've experienced. Certainly there are those listening who need to hear this. If anyone is trying to understand what a warrior is, it isn't someone who's afraid of vulnerability. That's how we may remain resilient and powerful. If there is anyone who is having suicidal thoughts right now that's hearing this, please get help now. Call 911 if you need to. Call the Veteran Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. You can chat online with them or you can send a text message to 838-255 to receive confidential support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Support is also available for those who who are hard of hearing or are deaf. Staff Sergeant Kat Kalin is a phenomenal example of what is possible. There is hope. We as veterans committed ourselves to leaving no one behind, and this stands true today. As the veteran musician Doc Todd says on his album Combat Medicine, let's conquer life like we conquered death. You are not alone out there. There is so much more good in store for you. Do not give up.